Speed up with podcast Speed Up. Want to read Rationally Speaking and not just listen to it? Come to our website where we're posting complete transcripts of every episode. That's rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. With me today is special guest Professor Robin Hansen, who is a professor of economics at George Mason University. Uh, he's uh, published extensively in the field of economics, but also in fields like artificial intelligence, cosmology, evolutionary biology, physics, politics, and more. Uh, Robin is also the author of the popular blog Overcoming Bias. Robin, welcome to the show. I'm uh, great to be here. Let's uh, hope we're closer to rationality than nonsense, but I guess we'll find out. <laughs> it's always a toss-up, really. Yeah, yeah, well, I, I, I want to know what the vote is at the end. <laughs> so uh, the topic I was really hoping to focus on today is something uh, that you've written a lot about on overcoming bias. In fact, there's a whole tag devoted to it on your blog. And that's the idea of signaling. Uh, and I think uh, I'm going to ask you to sort of explain what that is in a sec. But I, I think that the the best way to sort of communicate to our listeners who aren't already familiar um, just how uh, linked the concepts of Robin Hansen and signaling are in the minds of your audience is to tell them of the existence of this meme, which uh, Robin, hopefully you are aware of. It'll be hilarious if you're not. Okay, so there's this this meme um, that was going around some corners of the internet, at least, uh, which has a, a photo of you um, and various words, you know, uh, uh, transposed or um, juxtaposed with the image. Um, so, for example, one of the memes uh, has your face and the phrase, most people think X is about Y. X isn't about Y. And then there's different variations on that. Like there's one that says uh, school isn't about learning. And one that says toast isn't about toasting. Or oh, toasters aren't about toast. Um, and, then, and then one that just has the phrase, look at you sitting there signaling. So, uh, Robin, maybe you could explain why this meme exists. Uh, what, what do you mean when you say things like school isn't about learning? Uh, right. So um, there's a lot of uh, subtleties to try to get across. But first, just the very basic concept. So um, whenever uh, what you do influences what other people think about you, then you're tempted to take that into account in your actions. So uh, if you, you know, comb your hair... And then uh, when people see your hair combed, they think differently about you than when your hair isn't combed. That will influence the chances that you choose to uh, comb your hair and how carefully you, and how much energy you put into it. Uh, and when you, know, you respond to those incentives, when you react to how people perceive you, and um, then they still draw conclusions from what you do, then it has to be because different people who look like you, but are different really, do different things. So that they look at an appearance and they can 
draw an inference about what's behind the appearance because there really are differences behind the scenes. And one of those differences can be in how easy it is for you to do something and, and how expensive it is for you to do something. So in the classic story of, say, school, uh, when you look at somebody who goes to school and you think of them as smarter or, or more knowledgeable or uh, quicker or easy, you know, better on the job, then uh, they respond to those incentives. They, they decide they want to go to school and uh, get a degree so that uh, you will think better of them. And uh, when lots of people realize that and they all decide, well, I guess it would be better if I went to school because people would think better of me, not all of them achieve the same total amount of school nonetheless. So that means there must really be differences behind the scenes and who is better able to go to school and earn better to you know, survive the process. And so that it, it makes sense then to draw conclusions about people based on whether they went to school because, in fact, there are these differences behind the scenes that make it easier for some people to actually go through the process. So uh, signaling is just this situation where there's a um, connection between appearances and conclusions you draw about the appearances and then the effort and, and what people do in order to make the appearances look good. So the, the signaling framework, uh, I took it to be not just about the fact that people draw conclusions from outward appearances, but, but also about the fact that we consciously or unconsciously make choices that will result in giving a certain appearance to someone in hopes of you know, signaling something like that we're smart. So no talented. one could have been around the world very long without realizing that people do are very aware of, of how other people think about them, and they're very aware of what they think would make other people think better of them. And they are, in fact, putting substantial efforts into doing the things that make other people think well of them. So and there's no doubt that there's a lot of that going on in the world. Um, so in that sense, signaling, signaling is trivial. Of course it's happening, duh. Um, the, of course, that's not what people were making fun of me for. <laughs> they're making fun of me. <laughs> Good-naturedly. <laughs> Of course, affectionately, uh, affectionately, no doubt, and, and I'm and I'm honored by by getting such attention. Yeah, uh, I but, don't have any memes out there. Clearly, I haven't made it yet. You you, you, you still have time. You're young, <laughs> many years yet to go to accumulate these uh, things. That was a masked hint to my <laughs> listeners. Hint, hint. And and they may well pick it up. They may well pick it up. But you you'll have to do your part by saying something that sounds a little silly. And yeah, that's right. Well, I'll I'll work on that. So so Robin, you were saying that in one sense signaling seems trivial, but right. So. Um, now, if, if we set that aside and, and now we take a bigger picture of human behavior, um, just look at all the different things people do and compare that to all the different things other animals do. Uh, and so most of the things that most animals do make a lot of sense in terms of raw survival and reproduction. Uh, they you know, eat, they hunt, they uh, find warm places to sit, they run away from predators, uh, you know, they protect territory, and humans do those things as well. But then humans do a wide range of other behaviors that uh, just are strange from the point of view of most animals. We have an entire civilization here, of course, uh, and some of the civilization is oriented around keeping us warm, keeping us fed, protecting us from predators and accidents and things like that. But then there's all these other things we do that don't seem very tied to, to you know, pure survival and reproduction. Uh, we do art, we do music, we tell stories, we have podcasts like this where we talk about abstract topics, we go to school, we go to the doctor, we, we invest money in financial hedge funds, uh, we build enormous uh, billion-dollar projects. 
And um, a lot of these things we do right on the surface just seem strange. That is, why would an animal be doing that? And then it turns out a number of the other things that we do that we have simple stories to explain why we do them that we usually think are adequate. In fact, those stories don't work very well at all. So in fact, the story that we go to school to learn things doesn't work very well. Then we don't really learn very much at school. And what we learn, we don't remember. And what we do remember isn't very useful. Uh, we go to the doctor, we say, to get healthier. But in fact, there's very little correlation between people being healthier and people going to the doctor. Uh, uh, you know, people investing enormous amounts in what's called financial intermediation, uh, invest, investing in investment funds and buying insurance and a wide range of things and, and they're spending 8% of GDP on that and it's just actually hard to understand why most of that is useful. And we just go down the line, there's a whole bunch of things that people do that just seem strange from the point of view of ordinary animals and then there's a whole bunch of other things that people think they understand why they do and in fact economists and social scientists like myself say actually we don't understand why people are doing things because they don't seem to actually achieve the functions they say they're trying to achieve. So uh, before we before we delve into how thoroughly sig the signaling hypothesis explains these choices, maybe we could just spend a little more time on why you think the standard stories fail. Because, for example, I suspect a lot of our listeners will have uh, felt confused at your statement that we go to the doctor and healthcare doesn't actually help us very much. Can you, can you explain more why you say that? Well, so uh, each one of these topics we can intend spend an entire lecture on, and yeah. they are counterintuitive, and that's partly why people, uh, you know, enjoy making fun of the X is not about Y scenario. I'm basic. I, the first data point is to say, you know, school can't really be about learning. Medicine can't really be about health. Uh, you know, investment can't really be about returns because we have all these pieces of data related to them that says that the way people seem to be trying to achieve these supposed ends are just so inefficient and ineffective that it's just hard to believe that this is what they're really doing. So um, my colleague Brian Kaplan, uh, who you should have on sometime, of course, uh, is writing a book Scheduled. about education. And uh, he'll tell you in great detail why the standard story about education just does not fly. Uh, well, I, I think people might be more on board with the idea that we don't really remember most of what we learn in school, but, but they hear your claim about medicine and they'll think like, what are you talking about? Does, is penicillin not effective? Do vaccines not work? What do you mean? So maybe you could just say a few more sentences about that. I mean, the first thing to say is, is we're talking about like the main explanation, not, do, not the entire explanation. Just like with school, of course, people learn some things at school uh, and some of the things they learn are useful. Uh, we're but most of the things they learn, they don't remember and aren't very useful. So we're looking for some you know, main explanation for the rest of what they're doing. Same for medicine. Of course, some parts of medicine are, in fact, affecting health. And some of the reason people go to the doctor is because they're sick. But uh, that isn't very satisfactory for most of the behavior uh, because uh, we just have a lot of data that isn't very consistent with that. So we have data about sort of geographic variations, for example. There are places where people just spend more on medicine, like counties or hospitals in the United States or um, nations in the world. And when we look at places where they spend more on medicine, uh, and then we look at how healthy people are there in terms of uh, how often they die, controlling for their age, and all the other things that we use to predict people living or dying, we just find there's very little to explain in terms of the medicine. We, we know a lot of things that influence health. Uh, we know that exercise and sleep and air pollution, age, of course, gender, uh, smoking. Uh, we just know a lot of things that influence health, and people are actually not very interested in those, surprisingly. Uh, but when they 
get to medicine, they're really obsessed with medicine, yet we, we find very little correlation between medicine and health once we control for the other things. So we actually have some randomized experiments where we took some people and paid them, basically, by giving them a lower price for medicine, and the people who had a cheap medicine price, they consumed a lot more medicine, but they were not any healthier. Uh, um, so this is a consistent result of the literature for a long time, and it's, it's of course, a puzzle from the point of view that people go to the doctor to be healthier. Uh, other related data is that people are actually remarkably uninterested in information about the quality of medicine. So there have been many experiments where you offer people like more information about the track record of their surgeon or something like that, even when they're about to undergo surgery, and it turns out they just don't want the information. And if you give it to them, they just don't use it. So again, that's a puzzle from the point of view of the, of course, people are trying to get healthier. That's why they go to the doctor point of view. So uh, a question that's often in the back of my mind when I read um, X isn't about Y stories is how much we can reasonably expect people to know that the method that they're pursuing um, to get, you know, medical, to get healthier or to, you know, get the benefits of an education, how much do they know that that's ineffective? Like, it's not sure. clear. The, the fact that the studies you cited are so counterintuitive indicates to me that, like, we shouldn't actually expect people to know that what they're doing is ineffective and that, therefore, it's not clear so why we should Let's conclude. go back to ground, ground and basic. Okay. So we've got humans, we have human behavior, and we're trying to explain it. So there are a number of very simple explanations for any kind of human behavior that people often resort to when they're looking for very simple explanations. And the, what... And in a sense, these more complicated explanations should be compared to these simpler explanations, uh, uh, and you shouldn't adopt the more complicated explanations if the simple ones seem to work well enough. The simplest explanation for almost anything anywhere is randomness. <laughs> you know, okay. And in fact, almost always when whatever we explain, we usually explain with some systematic theory plus randomness. We're always adding in some degree of randomness when we explain almost any data set we have. So one very simple explanation for anything is just to crank down the systematic part and crank up the noise and say, it's all noise, it's all randomness. So you could say, well, it's a complicated world and people don't really know how it works, so therefore they're just acting at random relative to what works. <laughs> and that's, of course, a very simple, straightforward theory. Uh, and we can apply that to everything, of course. They can be acting at random at work and they act at random when they drive and in mating and everywhere else. Um, Another very simple common theory, it's, it's somewhat related, is the social conformity theory. Why do people do things? Because the people around them do the same thing. So they're just doing whatever people around them are doing. So now that theory explains some correlations. It explains that people in the same area and time and place do a similar thing rather than random things. So uh, if we just have the random theory, the random theory doesn't really explain why there are these correlations. Of course, we could create new random theories that just put the correlations in by hand. Uh, but this, uh, you know, social conformity theory does explain uh, conformity in the some sense that people end up doing similar things. But from the point of view of like which similar things they do in any one time and place, it's really a randomness theory. It says, well, you know, there was just some random process that ended up producing whatever people in some time and place thought was the thing to do. And just everybody does that thing. So we're putting these right up front because these are very common theories that people uh, appeal to often into explaining mm -hmm. almost everything that goes on around them. The main failing is that they just don't explain patterns very well. Um, if there are any consistent tendencies, these theories don't really have a way to predict them. Um, so whenever we see more consistent tendencies, we will be, have to be drawn to some other kinds of explanation to make sense of them because 
it's not enough just that people do things randomly or that they do the same things as each other uh, in order to explain why they consistently, say, around the world and across history, do the same sort of thing. So I like your point about simplicity, and it reminds me of a nice quote from a philosopher named uh, Alfred North Whitehead, which you may be familiar with. He said, uh, the guiding motto for a natural philosopher uh, or a scientist should be seek simplicity and distrust it. Um, And my sense, I don't know exactly what he meant by this, but my sense... uh, Einstein's quote was a little pithier, I have to say, which was, (laughs) you should find the simplest theory, but no simpler. No simpler, yes. Excellent. Okay, so my intuition about why this is good advice is at least twofold. First, that simpler explanations are more useful because they sort of have more predictive uh, bang for their buck. Um, But also because uh, in the process of, of forming simple theories, we make it easier to notice when those theories are wrong. So we can't just keep on adding parameters and parameters and epicycles and epicycles and and guard ourselves against falsification um, or, you know, against contrary evidence. Uh, and, and that's where the distrust simplicity part of the advice comes in. Um, so I guess what's what I'm genuinely confused about is, you know, the signaling framework does seem to be seeking simplicity, but where does the distrust it come where does that part come in? Like, where is the, uh, what kind of evidence would make you accept, okay, the signaling theory is too simplistic in this case, it doesn't actually explain what's going on? Well, I mean, always, you know, the theories will make some concrete predictions, and you'll want to be comparing the actual predictions with what the theory predicts, and you'll want to be asking how many free parameters you're allowing yourself. And, uh, so I, I think we can imply those, but I think we have to explain the theory a bit more before we can explain to listeners how, how we're going to do that sort of thing. Great. Uh, really. So, so, but one, one empirical test to keep in mind straightforwardly for signaling theories is um, do people draw conclusions about other people on the basis of the, these behaviors? Yes. Uh, and then do, can people do anything to influence those appearances? So... If people draw conclusions about what they see and people can influence those appearances, then there has to be some element of signaling going on uh, if, if, if those two you know, parts are, in, in, are coherent with each other. If, if people are actually you know, somewhat knowledgeable about how people see them and, and somewhat knowledgeable about how to influence those appearances, then... And care the, about how people see right? them. Right. Yep. And then if other people have some idea what people can, in fact, do to influence the appearances, then we're in the signaling world. So it's, it's more a matter of how much signaling is going on and at what level. Right. Not so much, is there any signaling going on? I'm sure there has to be signaling going on in that case. And so I think an awful lot of these behaviors, it's really easy to check and assure yourself. Just ask people around you some random questions to see. People do, in fact, draw conclusions about other people from any of these behaviors. Uh, and we, we can you know, set ourselves some hypotheticals here, if you'd like, when we, when we get to that point, to just walk through what kind of conclusions people draw. So that's one set of data. Uh, that we can use to check uh, signaling theories is just w- what conclusions people do actually do, and of course, then what efforts people are doing. You know, to what to what appearance do people prefer to have, and how much effort are they putting in, and what kinds of effort to look better. Um, the, the other broader context that I started to allude to before is to step back and just ask, what kinds of behaviors would you expect humans to be doing in the first place, just as as an a priori level. That is. What are the kinds of behaviors you expect to have evolved? Now, 
Some people, yeah, even some of my colleagues at lunch today, you know, favor the randomness theory of humans are so complicated and the modern world is so at variance with our ancestral environment that you should just shouldn't be able to expect to predict much of anything that people do because it's just all so complicated. <laughs> There's some sense to which some of certainly what our world is complicated and we should be cautious about being overconfident there. But nevertheless, I think we know some things about the kinds of things we expect our ancestors to have evolved to do and therefore, and some of the ways those would have been projected into the modern world. So uh, just to review some basics about human history and human nature, um, chimpanzees and other primates are uh, very social creatures. They have very large brains compared to other animals because they are very social. They have very complicated social lives, which are where they're most of their environment that matters is other creatures like themselves. And they're paying a lot of uh, cognitive energy and attention to thinking about what other people are doing, what other people think about them, thinking about uh, and creating alliances, deceiving each other. Uh, and they basically create these political coalitions that uh, support each other and try to take out other coalitions. And this is the social brain theory, which is, I think is roughly correct, that in fact, for our ancestors, the most important thing in their environment was other creatures like themselves, their social world, and most of their brain was actually devoted to the social world around them. Um, then there's a, a, another sort of standard theory about how humans differed from other primates. And the key differences between humans and other primates, according to this story, you can look at, say, the book Hierarchy in the Forest by Christopher Bohm, uh, is that humans had language and tools, and that allowed a coalition of the large groups against anyone who would try to set themselves up above. So they had a strong egalitarian norm. They had egalitarian norms uh, for sharing, against bragging, against dominance. And um, they, so these norms are enforced by the fact that uh, we could watch each other's behavior. And if we saw somebody violating a norm, we could say it in words. We could tell other people. They could, they could exchange it. They, they, we could, uh, perhaps they could verify it by watching. And then we could coordinate to talk about what to do, how to respond to this norm violation, what punishment was appropriate. And then we could implement that punishment because we had tools uh, in that, you know, everybody has to sleep and when they sleep they're vulnerable. So chimpanzees, uh, basically since their tools are pretty weak, uh, if, you, if, if you punch one while they're asleep, you got the first punch in, but that's all. And then there's going to be a long fight. And so, um, but for humans, our tools are strong enough that you can kill somebody in their sleep. Um, and we have tools that act from a distance so that even when they're awake, a large group of us can stand off at a distance and kill somebody. So that meant that groups of humans could in fact kill other humans when they thought they were violating norms enough. So the bottom line is humans had this very different uh, world of norms and enforcing norms, uh, but we also had uh, this strong, again, social background of, of being uh, strongly social creatures with uh, very complicated reasoning about each other. So, in this context, the, your priors about what strange human behaviors should be about should be social priors. You should be thinking that most behaviors that you don't know what they're about probably have something to do with social interactions with other humans. Um, so, not all social interaction is signaling, of course, but um, a lot of social interaction is about not just coordinating to do things, but deciding what we believe and who, what to do about to who. So, you know, in coalition politics and in, in other primates and in humans, uh, you have to decide who, who can I trust, who are my friends, who, who are good friends, who are powerful friends, who would be useful to have as friends, and who 
or pretending to be loyal to me, but actually would betray me, uh, who are betraying me behind my back. Um, and you know, what's going on that I can't see? Are those two people whispering? Are they looking at me? Are they talking about me, etc.? And um, I think we should just have strong priors that those sorts of complicated social strategies are a lot of what we should expect strange behaviors to be about. And certainly a big component of a lot of that behavior, of those social behaviors is looking at people and trying to draw conclusions about them. Uh, you know, is this person a good mate? Is this person a good ally? Is this person loyal to me? And whenever you're trying to draw those information, inferences from things you see, then the flip side of that is people trying to do things to make themselves look good to you. They're trying to decide, well, what would make myself, me seem loyal to you? What would make me seem uh, like a good mate? What would make me seem like a good ally? So I agree that, that that we should have a fair amount of weight on the prior that we do things to uh, make other people think well of us and respect us um, and, and form coalitions and everything that you said. I'm just confused about how to weigh that prior against other priors that I think we also have good reason to put weight on. Um, like, well, in the medicine case, for example, when uh, you said people are sort of surprisingly unwilling to uh, pay for information about whether the hospital that they're at will have a higher chance of successfully completing their surgery than a different hospital, which you would think would be information that they would want to know uh, if they, you know, if they were actually purchasing the surgery in hopes of having a successful outcome, right? Like that is sort of a rational decision-making strategy, which I agree with. Um, but cognitive science and, you know, just our experience as humans living in the world has generated a bunch of other, I think, pretty solid facts, which should be part of our prior, like the fact that humans are bad at probability and are pretty scope insensitive and don't really feel the difference between, you know, a 5% chance of failure versus an 8% chance of failure. Um, and also the fact that humans are sort of superstitious thinkers and on some level, it feels like if we don't think about risks, they can't hurt us or something like that. And so when I think about, you know, not even knowing the result of that study, if I think about a priori, what would I expect to see? I would have put, I, it feels like anyway, who knows, hindsight bias, etc. But it feels like I would have put a significant amount of weight, even in the absence of signaling caring as the signaling hypothesis there, that people would fail to purchase that useful information because of these facts that we now have about the human brain. So one of the things we're obviously we want to do in data analysis here is do comparative analysis. So uh, we know of a lot of different industries in the world. People you know, buy cars and repair them. They buy houses and repair them. They have human bodies and they repair them. So we can compare people's behavior across different industries and we can look for differences to explain. So... Um, any explanation that's just about generic human psychology is an explanation that would apply equally to all these different industries. So when we see in different behaviors in different industries, these kind of explanations aren't going to work very well unless they're tied to some other difference between those industries that we can point to. So, uh, you know, as an economist, I spend a lot of time uh, studying medicine and how it's different from lots of other industries in the world. And those differences are the starting point for these sorts of uh, explanatory you know, exercises, you're looking for theories that can explain some of these differences. Uh, so, you know, we typically get our car repaired at car auto repair shops. And in fact, there is a substantial correlation between cars 
being repaired and people paying for car repairs. Um, similarly for housing repairs. So it's not that people just are so bad at knowing how to buy repairs that stuff, there's no correlation between repair expenditures in general and, and things getting repaired in general. Uh, but medicine is different from these other areas. So we have something different to explain there. And I think also in many other industries, we do pay a lot of attention to quality signals and much more than in medicine. So it's not just mm -hmm. that we are just bad at paying attention to quality signals in general and therefore uh, we just can't figure out how to pay attention to quality. We, are, we act differently about medicine than we do in other areas where we uh, also have difficulty understanding things. I mean, not to say that the simplest model goes well. I think in, in most areas we do spend less on information about quality than you might have expected. Uh, and uh, that's a, a wide puzzle. But we still have these big differences between areas. Uh, and we can go through many other sort of ways in which medicine is different from other kinds of uh, behaviors. And of course, if you introspect, I'm sure you can, you can realize that we do treat medicine quite differently. We're, we're much more eager to regulate medicine. Uh, we're much more eager to get a medicine uh, purchased communally and uh, through communal channels. Uh, we are much more eager to uh, get medicine associated with prestigious sources. Um, these are all ways in which medicine is different than other industries. Now, there's, of course, a whole academic industry of trying to explain these ways in which medicine is different. Uh, and I suggest, you know, a particular way of explaining it. But it's the same is true for ed education. Um, and Brian can tell you, education is different from many other kinds of industries that you might think they're similar to. And those are the puzzles that we try to explain about education, why uh, people, you know, treat education differently than other similar industries. Actually, if we can just go back to medicine real quick, I realize I'm not sure either of us explicitly stated what the signaling hypothesis is in the case of medicine. We explained how it's not about health, but what is it about? Right, right. So um, one plausible hypothesis, but uh, you know, it's, it's a tentative hypothesis, is the idea that medicine evolved as a way to show that we care. That is, uh, we are reassured when other people spend money on medicine to take care of us. And we like to reassure people around us that we care about uh, via spending money on medicine to take care of them. And uh, they respond positively to that reassurance. There's what's called the placebo effect, whereby people just, in a sense, seem to get better directly as a result of the appearance of care, even when there's not actually a physical effect, a direct physical effect. Mm -hmm. um, and so the idea is that our distant ancestors, of course, um, needed to take care of, need, they had things that went wrong and they um, needed some help from each other. And because of, there was all this complicated coalition politics, they were afraid, uh, rightly so, that the moment they got injured or sick was exactly when their supposed allies would betray them and abandon them. Because that, in fact, is the right time to abandon them if you're going to do it. They are weak and, and are much more expensive. So uh, being sick or injured is usually something that took a while to get better from, and so your friends or allies would have to actually spend a lot of resources on you to uh, take care of you, and they should only really do that if they expect you to stay a friend and an ally to them for a long time. So it became a credible signal of a long-term intention of allegiance to take care of somebody when they were sick or injured. Uh, and because of that, we were all eager to send that signal, that to reassure our allies that we are, in fact, intending to stay with them and that we intend to... Uh, take care of them and, and, and be their allies for a long time. And so we were eager to send those signals of caring and attention. And we, when we did so, they uh, responded exactly as we hoped by uh, feeling reassured and, and cared for and loved. 
And so we all, even today, tears come to our eyes, just imagining the scenario of ourselves being sick or injured and our friends and allies coming to our aid and, and taking care of us. It's very touching. And rightly so, because that's exactly the sort of thing we needed a signal of. Now, this whole story, it can be consistent with medicine actually working a lot. You, you could have medicine that was very useful and then a layering onto it, this reassurance of, of help. But when medicine isn't, in fact, useful or, or it becomes much less useful, you still might continue on with the same sort of reassurance behavior, even if um, the medicine itself wasn't as effective. So uh, as we've gotten rich in the last few centuries, we've actually spent a lot more on medicine as a percentage of income than we used to. And you might think that the first amount of spending was useful, but after a while, well, we didn't have more useful things to spend it on, but we just kept spending anyway. And what about medical care that people purchase for themselves? How is that signaling? Well, you heard of Valentine's Day. Uh, and you know, uh, rings a bell. Yes. There's a tradition of like giving somebody a gift of chocolates or, or roses or something on Valentine's Day. Did you know that some people who do not get gifts of chocolate or roses buy it for themselves on Valentine's Day? Aww. <laughs> why do they do that? Well, can you imagine why that would feel nice? I can imagine why it would feel sad. But it also could feel better than the alternative of not getting anything. Yeah. Okay. So you want, to, you want the appearance of being cared for. So especially you might do this if you could fool your coworkers into thinking that somebody had bought them for you. Oh, that I get. <laughs> there you go. Okay. But, so you want but the, the appearance of people caring for you, even if, nobody, even if you have to pay for it yourself. You want to... I mean, sure, surely our drive to survive and avoid pain is just as evolutionarily... Uh, significant is our drive to signal caring, right? And w I mean, why wouldn't we? There are actually interesting theories about uh, pain itself. So I, I was just reading an article here uh, on my screen here about ways in which pain can be involved in something like signaling. So actually, for example, um, most other animals uh, do not have very much pain during birth compared to humans. Humans, human females, of course, suffer far more pain than other animals during birth. Yet, in fact, uh, the physical damage and risks are not substantially larger in human females than in many other animals where they feel much less pain. So uh, one of the stories, which seems plausible, is that human female pain during birth is there in order to entice, induce other people to come take care of the woman, to help her give birth. And since humans have a lot of helpers along at birth, traditionally, then uh, this is a way to make that happen. It's a credible signal of needing and wanting the help. Um, this pain. So there are senses in which our pain could be uh, produced via an evolutionary process that has signaling in mind. So, so this brings up an issue I wanted to make sure I mentioned because uh, some people have like brought it up several times, which is the signaling theory isn't necessarily a theory about your conscious intentions or plans. Right. So there's a whole chain of causation between your evolutionary heritage and your doing any one thing like going to school or going to the doctor or having a chocolate on Valentine's. And signaling theories can apply at many different levels here. Uh, so for example, you might consciously decide, I'm going to go to school so I will look good. Uh, but it didn't have to be that way. So you know, some, some young men decide they consciously want to be a rock star because it'll attract women. And, and many young men do that, but of course many other young men decide they want to be a rock star because they love rock music. Now, Either way works evolutionarily, 
it's, it's the behavior that produces the outcomes and not necessarily your rationalization. So mm. at, for some kinds of behavior, evolution can give you a conscious desire to be, to be seen, you know, to, be, to look good, and then you consciously make a plan to achieve that looking good. But for other kinds of behaviors, evolution may just give you a desire for something like comfort of, of people taking care of you uh, or just the joy of being a rock musician. And you may not realize its evolutionary functions, and those, some of those functions can be signaling. Mm. So I don't specifically mean to, to accuse people of being consciously planning these things. And I think that's part of the resistance to the signaling hypothesis. It basically says that we're manipulative and, and, and you know, overly concerned with our appearance. And most of us like to think that even though sometimes we pay attention to our appearance, mostly we're driven by our basic desires for liking certain kinds of things uh, that don't, and we like to think we don't really care what other people think or, you know, even though we do care what other people think, we'd still do the same thing even if they didn't like it because by gum, we're just that sort of principled, dedicated person to liking the things we like. Right. So in the case of buying medical care to signal caring, uh, probably most people would say what it feels like on the inside to buy medical care to try to save their dying mother's life is they actually care and they actually want her to um, continue living. And I mean, I could imagine a plausible evolutionary explanation for this, that we, we care about people who share our genetic material because genes that had that property or caused that property were more likely to, you know, propagate than genes that didn't. And, and that's, so I mean, how so does your theory in fact distinguish between genuinely caring versus wanting to show caring? Or are those both part of your theory? They're both part. So the, the fact of the matter is there is, in fact, a big complicated intermixed land between our you know, evolutionary motives and our conscious attention. So for even thinking about school, some people just are very conscious about wanting to go to school because they want the degree and they don't really care about what they learn. And other people think they want to learn. Uh, and other people are just mixed up in between. And, and, and some, on Tuesdays, they're one way on, on Wednesdays, the other way. Um, same way for lots of these other sorts of motivations. People are complex. So even in the medical case, you, you take people who, who think they care about their grandmother and you explain to them, look, most end-of-life care is really not very helpful and it puts them in more pain, so just quit and send them to a hospice. And it's really hard for people to do that. And it's sure. in part because they realize they might be accused of not caring. That is, there's often this suspicion and concern that uh, the reason you're not spending more on sending them to regular doctors is because that costs for and hospice is cheaper. So the real reason you want to go to hospice is because it's cheaper. And people are very actually conscious and, and, and concerned about that sort of accusation. And that actually drives a lot of people to continue mm. to push their parents into more painful, less healthy, but more expensive care at the end of life. That does ring true, actually. Like, like that actually matches the sort of feeling on the inside uh, explanation right. that I was talking about. You'd have to about. look inside to see that feeling. But, you know, if you just look at the surface of your mind, you say to yourself, well, of course I just care about grandma. And so the question is, well, where are your real, real feelings or where is your real motivation? And it's actually spread out all over the place. Huh. Uh, what types of things do you think are most, where the gap between people's feeling about their motivations and the strength of the signaling explanation is biggest? Well, I, I think the basic fact is, um, the basic puzzle is, we do a lot of things that we don't really know why. So the basic, it doesn't, it, it's perfectly plausible to understand why 
creatures like humans might signal a lot because we're very social and there's lots of things to signal. The puzzle might be, why don't we know that we're signaling? And so the, the basic explanation there is there are some motives that are uh, high and some motives that are low, and we like to try to appear to have high motives rather than low motives. So there are many ways in which we have actually low motives, motives that we don't like to admit to but that are really there, but when we prefer to substitute high motives. And, and also for these social norms, we prefer to act like we're following the usual social norms even when we aren't and we're violating them. So uh, the difference between uh, what we think we're doing and why we're doing it and what, why we're really doing it is highest exactly when our real motives are low and things we don't want to admit to <laughs> and the motives we're pretending to have are, are great and noble and the sort of things everybody admires. Because it's easier to give the appearance of someone with noble motives if you actually are dece have deceived yourself into thinking you have noble motives? We all leak in so many different ways. So if you, if you at some level, figuratively speaking, it, right, we, we, our motives leak or our, our, our feelings leak in many ways. We, we just have all these different channels by which our, our feelings come out in our eyes and our, our tone of voice and our tremors and all sorts of things. So that if somewhere deeper inside we have a sincere belief in something, then that makes it look more consistent like that's our motive. But of course, we have many, many layers below those layers, uh, where, which can be really driving what we do. So uh, we're almost out of time, but I just can't resist. Speaking of people leaking, uh, there was a quote that I posted on my Facebook wall, I guess, last October. Um, it was from the eminent statistician Andrew Gelman, um, and he was actually complaining about economic models in general. And he said, it's as if you went into a bathroom in a bar and saw a guy pissing on his shoes, and instead of thinking he has some problem with his aim, you suppose he has a positive utility for getting his shoes wet. And well, then, uh, I think that brings us back to a random theory. If you just saw one guy pissing on his shoes, yeah, you should think that. If you go into consistently go in the bathroom and they consistently all pissing on their left shoe, I do think you have to start to wonder if something else is going on. Got it. So that's what I was going to ask you, what you think the actual parallel is to the signaling case. And I guess I'm still, it's still not clear to me that the uh, pissing on the shoe is systematic and reliable enough, um, consistent with what we would expect from signaling as opposed to other things. Uh, but I... So the less you know about human behavior, the more you can maintain a simple randomness theory that everything's random. I think as you learn more about what people are actually doing, you actually tend to see a lot of very consistent patterns in what they do, and that forces you to come up with theories that are capable of explaining consistent patterns, and randomness and even social conformity just don't do very well for those. Well, I think you're using the word randomness to refer to sort of a whole collection of things, or sorry, the thing that you're calling randomness, I would call a whole collection of tendencies and cognitive biases and heuristics. Um, right, but that, but that don't may produce any the appearance of randomness. Of the but they're just a more complex explanation, which is unfortunate. It just seems like that's, in fact, what we have on our hands scientifically. Of course, that's what all randomness is, really complexity, of course. You know, sure. You see a pile of rocks on, on the ground. Uh, there were very specific forces that put each rock there in its place. But if you don't know what those are, you tend to summarize it in a simple randomness theory, which is adequate uh, you know, if you don't know those details. Similarly, if, there, if people's decisions are made for a thousand little biases and a thousand little cognitive errors and, and hacks, if those don't, aren't in any particular pattern relative to each other or structure, then the net effect of them will tend to be random unless some more systematic process comes in and, and makes it be systematic. Right. 
Interesting. Okay, well, I'm sure we could have 10 more episodes about signaling alone, but okay, we we'll do all it. out of time. So we will wrap up this section of the podcast and move on to the Rationally Speaking Picks. Welcome back. Every episode, we invite our guest to pick the rationally speaking pick of the episode, a book or website or movie or something else that tickles his or her rational fancy. Robin, what's your pick? I think I have to give a nod to Geoffrey Miller's The Mating Mind. It was a book that very much influenced me uh, 15 years ago when I was first trying to uh, make sense of a wide range of uh, strange things people were doing. So he offered a grand, ambitious hypothesis that tried to explain a wide range of, of puzzling human behavior. And uh, that was inspiring to me to try to take on that level of ambition and, and scope. Uh, in the end, I'm not sure I'm that persuaded by the particular uh, hypothesis he came up with. It, was, it, it has some plausibility, but I was more just drawn to the, um, the attempt and the spirit of it, of, of trying to make sense of a lot of strange things people do. And just realizing that a lot of what people do is strange. That, that's right on the face of it. Mm. Once you see it, it's kind of obvious, but it just, we miss it unless somebody points it out. Great. Well, we will link to The Mating Mind on the podcast website. And I encourage all of our listeners to check out Robin's blog, Overcoming Bias, where you can read all about the signaling theory, as well as many, many other interesting topics. Um, and also to keep an eye out for uh, a forthcoming book. Robin, do you know when your book on signaling will come out? I ha- I'll have a book on signaling coming out in the next two years, but I'm afraid I'll have to wait a little bit before I can tell you the title and publisher. Okay, great. Well, keep an eye out. I'm sure it'll be fascinating. Robin, thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed this conversation and, and found it pretty enlightening. So Great talking you. to you, Julie. All right. Well, this concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening.